We're in Amos right now, Amos 3, 1. We're going to read the whole chapter. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants and prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your stronghold shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with a corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Good morning. So we have all these classes going on with Lazarus at the gate and improv and all these other things, and I just wanted to clarify that it's not just so that we download you with a bunch more information. What we're trying to do is build community. And so if you guys are connecting through improv classes or if you're connecting through Lazarus at the Gate, it's great. And Lazarus at the Gate, Nick actually, this past year, he's been really instrumental to me. Jesus is very evident in that guy. So if anything, just hang out to hang out with Nick. But he uh, recommended this spiritual formation cohort for me this past year. And it's helped me grow a lot spiritually this past year and just a lot closer with God. And so Nick is somebody that I've been growing in friendship with and New Hope is someone that I've had a really long-standing friendship with. I go on prayer retreats with some of their leadership once a month and so we've just had a really nice connection there. So please come out. Uh, we want to do this for all of your benefit. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your scriptures this morning, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal to us what you want from us, what you desire of us, what you want to impart to us, not to fill us with more head knowledge and not to just give us a temporary feeling change, but that it would motivate change, transformation within us so that we are more like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. I know that some of you are really surprised because we're looking at an entire chapter that's what we're doing this morning. And in looking at the first two chapters of Amos, we noticed that there was a pattern that Amos wrote regarding the offenses and the consequences of the six Gentile nations surrounding Judah and Israel and Judah and Israel itself. Well, that wasn't the only pattern that Amos was using in his prophetic writings. Looking back to chapter 1, verse 2, 
Amos wrote, the Lord roars from Zion. And then in chapter 3, we'll notice Amos writing about a lion's roar once again. Now, what is all this about? Well, it's about God speaking to his people through his prophet. God speaking a message that was not very well liked by people who were materially wealthy. As Nick mentioned earlier, we are the wealthiest nation in the world. But those people were not socially just. They were not moral, and they weren't spiritually healthy. So Amos' message was unpleasant to these people who were comfortable in how they were living even though they were not living godly lives. People who lied to themselves about who God is, how God desires people to live, and what God desires out of people's lives. And even though they had the word of God, they just kind of created their own God. As if God is created by us in our own minds. See, God is God. And he is not created, he is creator. And we don't make God out to be the way that we like him to be. He is who he is. Just like he said to Moses, I am who I am, or I am. Right? So he can't be changed by anyone or, or made out to be as one wants him to be made out. His nature and his character cannot be changed. And the scriptures tell us who God is. What one thinks God must be has to be supported by the scriptures. And we can't make up who God is. So who is God really, truthfully? Not the false views that we've heard from folks who don't know the scriptures and that we've actually accepted as true. But what is truth? What is reality? And this was one of the main problems that Judah and Israel had in Amos' time. They came up with these false views of God, thinking God to be more like a Santa Claus or an Easter bunny or something, and God who just merely exists so that he can give people things. And so, yes, God gives us things, and he gives generously, but is that all who God is? Obviously, the answer is no. God desires relationship with us, and in those relationships, there is a give and then there is a take. And to see who God truly is, really is, we need to look at the scriptures, and so is the benefit to us to look at these prophetic writings of Amos, to see God for who he really is, not a make-it-up-as-you-go kind of God, but who God really is according to his word. So often we listen to culture attempting to dictate who God is to us, and the world does not dictate who God is. God has already told us who he is, and it's recorded for us in the Bible. So let's take a look at verse 1, chapter 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. God's judgment is just. It is necessary in cases where pride has overrun one's heart, one's life. And the first thing Amos tells the people here to do is to hear. Parents, teachers, particularly wives, you know what this is about, right? When you ask people whom you desire to hear from you, and so you say things like, are you listening to me? Do you hear me? Or how many times do I have to say the same thing? So that's kind of what's happening here, right? Amos was getting across to the people of Israel, listen, listen up. Now, there's the word against in verse 1 here. It says, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. 
Now this is more accurately translated upon or concerning rather than against. It's not that against is wrong because God is judging them, but there's a different effect on people if you change this word, right? So imagine Amos plugging in the word against and then imagine Amos plugging in the word concerning. So let's plug in the word concerning here. And it says, hear this word that the Lord has spoken concerning you, O people of Israel. And so the people of Israel will be like, oh, God has something concerning us. As opposed to, the Lord has something against you. Like, what? He has something against us? I mean, look at us, we're awesome. But this is concerning you. So, oh, concerning us. We are awesome. And they're drawing in here. And so, concerning the whole family. And so when he's saying whole family, we know that the southern and the northern kingdom, they were two different kingdoms, right? Judah in the south, Israel in the north. And when he says whole family, it's both of these places, Judah and Israel. That I brought up out of the land of Egypt, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. So here you can imagine people gathering, hearing what Amos had to say. And then he says, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. What? You pull us in with this word that the Lord has concerning us. The people of Israel, the whole family that the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So we're hearing like, yeah, he brought us out of Egypt and he's for us. And then you turn it around and say, he's going to punish us. Yeah. And it's a message specifically for them. It's not for these other six Gentile nations. Now why? Well, they were adopted into God's family. And you notice how they were addressed in verse 1, whole family. What did the Lord say to Pharaoh in Exodus? He said, let my people go. It's his family. And what it's about, it's a relationship. This is family. And I hope you grow in understanding that God wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to be family to you. And if he hasn't already adopted you into his family, he wants you to be a part of it. He's inviting you to be a part of it. And in order for that to happen, you have to be set free from the bondage that is holding you back from arriving to that place. And so if you take a look at the people of Israel, what did they need to be set free from? Slavery in Egypt. They had to be set free from that. And their freedom was something that they could not do for themselves. They couldn't decide, hey, I'm free, I'm going to walk, I'm, I'm leaving. Can't do that. You cannot set yourself free. And so they had to be rescued from their bondage, just like you and I cannot free ourselves from the bondage of sin. You simply can't do it. We need rescue. And God offers that to us. And so if you aren't adopted into his family already, he invites you to be a part of his family, and he invites you by rescuing you from your bondage to sin. Now, part of being in a family is connecting, communing with one another. And when that connection is breaking or has broken, it has to be mended, right? It has to be mended. And that isn't always pleasant. Because if you think of a broken bone, the mending process can actually be quite painful to reset that bone, right? So that's kind of the mending of a broken relationship with God in that it can be awfully painful to reconnect that which is broken. 
Right? Sin, iniquity, breaks the connection to God. That's why sin is so horrible. And people often question why some sins even matter. People tend to agree on sins that are kind of like the so-called biggies, like murder. But there's a fair amount of compromise in other things, such as stealing, right? So tax season is here. It is, right? It's right around the corner. That's why I'm bringing it up. How much of your character, your integrity, did you compromise? Or will you compromise? And there are websites out there where you can get music and movies for free that are supposed to be paid for. How much honor, how much honesty was compromised in your thinking and in your actions? And I'm not coming across to try to tell you about being legalistic or anything like that or, or by living by the law. It's this. It's how we view our relationship with God. How does our character grow our communion with God or our lack of character break our communion with God? So it's not a legalistic thing at all. It's not a word of the law, letter of the law thing at all. This is about a relationship with God because holiness matters. Righteousness matters. Not because God is some militant authoritarian up from heaven looking down waiting for us to make up and just going to smack our hand but because sin breaks communion with our holy God and he desires a relationship with us. And because you and I sin does not mean that we are no longer in Jesus because he died for our sins, whether they are past, present, or future. But the thing is, is that the blessings of being in relationship with Jesus have been severely compromised when we sin. What does this judgment from God do? Well, it filters out the frauds and it refines those who are adopted into the family. John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. See, our lives not easy. We get pruned. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers." And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So here, the frauds will be sifted out. And the ones who are in the family, you are pruned, but you will bear fruit. So we must hear the word of God speak concerning us. And we have to believe what God has to say to us through knowledge, action, and experience. And so check out verses 3 through 8 and this series of rhetorical questions recorded in Amos. 
Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? No. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? No. Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? No. You get the pattern? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? No. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? No. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And here's the Israel kind of taking a pause before they answer. Because the answer is also no. See Amos kind of drawing them in? No, no, no. And does disaster come to the city unless the Lord does? Ah. But it's true. And so at this last rhetorical question, I think the Israelites got it. See, judgment was coming, and it wasn't by accident. It wasn't bad luck. It wasn't chance. It wasn't fate. It was the Lord. Now, this is not very pleasant news for those in the 8th century B.C., and I don't think it's very pleasant news for us today because I do see a lot of parallels between us and them. A few months ago when we were studying the book of Galatians, we looked at this principle of sowing and reaping. And so here's the evidence of that principle. Judah and Israel had been sowing this consequence for a long, long time. And this is what they were going to reap. And so this wasn't just some empty threat. This is not a threat at all by God. It was what they sowed. And this is what they would reap. Judah and Israel agreed to meet with God. And God would roar from Zion as Judah and Israel had fallen prey to sin. God would roar from Zion because Judah and Israel had fallen into a snare and the trumpet will be blown because disaster is coming. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And it's not that the principle is just on autopilot and God just delivers the principle and God just kind of takes off. God is sovereign and he's active in this and he is in control and he addresses injustice because he is a just God. And our relationship with him is the paramount thing that he is after. And throughout history, God revealed every essential lesson that we need and he has hidden Nothing, nothing is hidden. Everything is revealed to us through his word. And he reveals himself through his servant, the prophets. In verse 7, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. It has all been revealed to us. And here Amos, the shepherd from Tekoa, the dresser of sycamore figs, was God's chosen prophet to bring about this news. And so if you notice something, there's still this window of opportunity for them to repent. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? So here, the lion has roared, but he hasn't consumed there's still this window of opportunity for repentance, just like there is for us now. 
God is roaring, but he has not consumed. And there's still an opportunity for those of us who do not have a good relationship with Jesus to come to repentance. And so you see God's extremely patient. But there will come a time when that ends. So the question is, how is your relationship with God this morning? Right now? Because the scriptures say, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Now back to Amos, verse 9. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. Now the word strongholds is mentioned several times in these verses and they are in reference to prosperity. As this Hebrew word is the same word used for citadel, fortress, or palace. So these guys were extremely wealthy people. And Amos addressed a society that was materially prosperous, but religiously hypocritical and morally depraved. Sound familiar at all? Sound anything like where we live at all? He told the Philistines, right? Ashdod, Philistines, and the Egyptians. Who are these two people? These are the most well-known foes of Israel and Judah. And what does he tell those guys to do? Camp out in the mountains of Samaria to witness the justice of God on God's people. He told God's enemies to do that. And he is not deceived. He is not mocked. And Israel will reap what they have sown. He will judge those who do not know how to do right. Right? Verse 10. Continuing on in verse 10, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. See, Israel warred with other nations. And in their violence, they plundered other nations and they built up their own nation. Again, sound familiar? Those who had power violently robbed those with less power. Well, Israel, who had felt secure and powerful because of their wealth and their strongholds, will have everything taken from them. Verse 11. And so what condition will they be left in? Verse 12. Thus says the Lord, As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. So after they reap what they have sown, they will be completely broken like what a shepherd finds of his sheep that has been taken by a lion, just torn apart, completely broken, just the legs or a piece of an ear. You see, a shepherd was just a lowly servant of his master's flock, right? This is the lowest of the low of occupations. So if a sheep went missing, say because a lion took the sheep and the sheep went missing, the master wants that sheep accounted for because who knows if you stole it or sold it for profit. I want evidence that that sheep was taken by a lion. So that shepherd was sent out to go looking for this missing sheep. And if they went missing, say, from the lion, the master wants that sheep accounted for. And so here this shepherd would kind of go out and look for this sheep. And so sometimes 
oh, there's a leg. And so I can bring this back to my master and say, yeah, see, lion. Or a piece of an ear, like, see, it was a lion. I didn't sell it. This is it right here. And so that's the proof. And so it was with Israel. They got mauled. They were broken with only pieces of them remaining. And even then, some ran to their idols. And God would take those false idols down. And then there's this second half of verse 12 that's interesting. So shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. What's that? There's going to be this remnant of Israel who will be saved, and they were in Samaria. But even they had this indulgent life in Samaria, because the Hebrew references what may be interpreted as silk for materials for their couch or their bed. See, they were indulgent as well. This is perpetuating throughout the Israelites. Verses 13 and 14. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Now we know that during this Israel's time in 8th century BC, that Israel set up altars for idols in Bethel, Gilgal, and Dan. And so God destroyed those altars. And when it speaks of horns, this is in regards to the safety and the strength people put on those idolatrous idols. And so God was saying, I'm going to take all of it down. There's no safety in those false altars, those false idols that you've kind of grown to depend on. There is no strength in those false things. And people were creating these false beliefs within themselves, lying to themselves, deceiving themselves, creating their own false gods when God has already provided instruction on how our relationship with Him was to be deepened. And again, any of this sound familiar? People just creating their own false idols and their false altars and creating these, the money is everything, or this is everything, or that's everything, and they put everything on that stuff, and God's saying, like, I'm going to wipe it all out. You take a look at verse 15, which will give you a sense of how wealthy these folks were and how prosperous the society was. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house and the houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. These guys had multiple homes. Summer homes, winter homes, houses of ivory, See, prior to King Jeroboam II's reign, houses in Israelite cities, they were just about the same size. They are all about the same size. And so what archaeologists have found dating back to the 8th century B.C. is that something changed in the size of the houses. And they've uncovered these neighborhoods, these communities where these great houses appeared that were much larger than just everybody else's house that they were accustomed to seeing because when people built houses, they just kind of built them all the same and people all lived in there. And these great houses were found in these neighborhoods where other great houses were found. Where the rich thought, you know, we're safe in our wealthier neighborhoods from those who just aren't like us. 
And so we don't have to worry about the things they worry about, whether it's crime or poverty or whatever it is. We are going to separate ourselves from them. And so the rich, who were often oppressive at this time, they thought they were safe from the problems of the majority of the population, and they would find them safe from the things that they did not have to deal with anymore because they just separated from themselves. But they were not safe from God's judgment. And the prophet Amos had news for them. Your wealth can't protect you. Your wealth can't protect you. There's nothing, there is no one who can protect you from the judgment of God because of your injustice. And those who think they have power, money, or anything else that they can take from God, they are in for a rude awakening. That idolatry, that pride, that rebellion will bring further separation from God and it will bring His judgment. And the things that separated people from God in Amos' time are the same things that separate people from God today. It's the same thing. God does not sit back and let evil happen forever. He is extremely patient. But there will be a time when enough is enough. And you look back to verses 14 and 15. I punish Israel for his transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. God is just. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. That's the ugliness of sin. And we can be so easily fooled by ourselves, can't we? fooled into believing that God is on our side if we possess material wealth. Like Israel in Amos' day, you know, we have it all. We have strongholds. We have summer houses, winter houses. I don't, but if you do, can you share those with me, please? <laughs> we have ivory houses. We have great houses. But they didn't have a right relationship with God, just like so many who have those things don't have a right relationship with God. And God was going to take it all down for their sake. It wasn't anything for Him. He was doing it for them. How often do you hear of folks who associate material possessions with God's blessings? And I'm not saying that it can't happen. Of course God can bless materially. But it isn't every single instant that if God blesses, that it's because of, look at my materials, therefore I am blessed. And more often than not, the material wealth warps one's view of God and their relationship with Him. It changes things with God. I did that to Israel back in Amos' day, and it's happening to people today, where they come into this wealth and they're starting to create their own religion, or they're starting to create how they look at God because they are shaped by something else that is idolatrous. And what people believe today is often not biblical. It's their own created idolatry. And some even attach Christianity to their idolatry. But there's no safety in your wealth. There's no strength or power in your material possessions. It's all coming down. So while they created these false beliefs with these self-created idols, they also created this false security on the outside with their wealth and their possessions. And Amos told them, God's taking it all down. And it's not because God is insecure about himself or God has a low self-esteem. It's because without this judgment, they'd be separated from God forever. And he wants that relationship with them. He wants that 
family relationship, and he wants to save us from our bondage. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not because he's a control freak, or that he's needy, or that he's manipulative. God's fine. It's because if we don't keep his commandments, our relationship with him will be broken, and he loves us. This is a given. You have to understand this. If you don't understand anything else about God or Amos or anything, you have to understand this. God loves you just the way you are. You don't have to do any more. You don't have to do any less. The exact way you are right now, this second, is God loves you unconditionally just the way you are. And so he says this, though, in John chapter 14, 15. If you love me, because it's already given that he loves you. That's a given. If you love me. See, his love for us is already there, and he wants that to continue. But it can't if you don't love him. And so his commandments are broken. That's kind of a sign that, yeah, you don't love him. But it doesn't change his love for you. So how are we to live? Back to Amos chapter 3 and look at verse 10 here. They do not know how to do right. Righteousness. Righteousness in our relationship with God and righteousness in our relationship with one another. Righteousness is not the ability to regurgitate right information. We must know how to do right to know what it is, and then to apply it. So how do we do that? Some of you might think that this is a loaded question and so difficult. It's really simple, actually. It starts like this. You ask God. It's as simple as that. You just ask Him, how do I do right in this situation, in this circumstance, in this relationship? And you just simply ask Him. Now what happened with Israel? He stopped asking which is why Amos first said, hear. Because they weren't listening. And so they faked this religion and they weren't asking God this question anymore. They looked toward their material wealth. They looked toward idols to fill their needs and their wants. And they were led astray by their own lies, allowing themselves to dictate their own morality rather than looking to God for that guidance. And it led them into darkness because it separated their communion with God. They couldn't tell the difference between right and wrong. And it happened in 8th century B.C., and it's happening today. People aren't asking God, how do I do right? They're not asking that anymore. They're asking their false idols. They're asking their paychecks and money. They're asking how to get ahead. They're asking people who aren't in tune with God how they should handle righteousness and they're looking at the culture, and they're looking at the world, which is far from God, that question and those answers are separating people from God, God who loves them and wants a relationship with them. The answers we get from other sources other than God, they just are not right. And once we stop asking God that question, how do I do right? You can guarantee someone's walking down the wrong path walking away from God and towards transgressions, just like Israel who transgressed and sinned against God. They had separated 
from him by their willful disobedience and rebellion. Without God's presence, how could they receive God's blessings? When God says yes, but we say no. And when God says no, but we say yes. How can God rain down his favor upon us in our rebellion? A couple of weeks ago, someone asked me, how can anyone not choose to be with God? How can they choose that? And this is what I said. Anyone who doesn't want to be like Jesus wouldn't feel at home in God's presence. So, if one chooses resentment or bitterness over forgiveness, you wouldn't be at home with God. You wouldn't be at home with Jesus. Choosing doubt over faith and trust or complaining over thanksgiving or choosing lust over purity or greed over generosity. Anyone who wouldn't ask God, how do I do right, would not feel at home in God's presence, would not choose to be with Him. See, righteousness matters. The questions we must ask ourselves, how do I live rightly with God and how do I live rightly with others? You and I will make mistakes. You and I will sin. You and I will transgress. How do we move forward from that unrighteous place to a more righteous place? Because it is us that needs to move forward. It's not God. God is waiting patiently for us to repent, to be like Him in forgiving others, loving others. And if we continue in our ways, we will become like Israel in chapter 3, verse 10. They do not know how to do right. They knew what was right because they had the scriptures, but they don't know how to do right. See, it's not about religion. It's not about being religious because they had all the what. They didn't have the how. It's about a right relationship with God. It's about the desire to be right with God, a hunger, a thirst for the righteousness of God and to be like Jesus. See, Israel was extremely religious. You couldn't be any more religious. But they were far from being right with God. And they attempted to redefine how to be close with God. And rather than following God's terms, following the reality of who God is, they came up with their own terms. And came up with these empty religious rituals. And things looked the way they were supposed to on the outside, but on the inside, things just weren't right. The heart was not right. And so it is for us. To be aware that we aren't just doing empty religion. Coming to church and doing churchy things. Where is our heart? Is our heart in the right place with God? Because the rituals that we practice at church, say like baptism, the purpose of baptism isn't to get wet. Right? Where is our heart in all of the religious things that we do? Are they done with the right heart, a heart for God? Why do we do what we do? Why do I preach and teach? And I need to ask myself this all the time. Where is my heart toward God in my service in preaching and teaching His Word? For me, if it's just like a paycheck or selfish ambition or recognition or influence, I'd be better off finding another line of work because God is looking at my heart as I serve Him and I serve you. Is your heart toward God as you live your life? You know, we have a lot of stuff going on here. 
and we're looking to grow the ministry in terms of outreach and evangelism and discipleship and connecting people into community and purchasing this facility. We're all in the midst of all that stuff. And there are questions we need to continually ask ourselves, such as, where is our heart toward God in all of this stuff that is happening? How do I live rightly with God and how do I live rightly with others even in the busyness of family and work and ministry and all the stuff that is going on around us am I compromising righteousness with sin and transgression am I hungering thirsting for a presence of God in my life and we must realize how powerless we are without him if you don't recognize how powerless you are without him Everyone in the world notices. Everyone in the world notices how powerless the church is becoming. We might as well realize it ourselves. We're powerless without God. But the flip side of that is we are powerful with Him. And the problem some of the people in the church have is that some are earthly-minded instead of being heavenly-minded. And so strongholds, summer houses, winter houses, houses of ivory, great houses in the 8th century B.C., it's much of the same stuff today. And I think many people in the church have an earthly-minded bent today. Righteousness, heavenly-mindedness, they've been replaced by indulgence and earthly-mindedness. There were many who were needy around Israel. But they were too preoccupied with their material possessions to care about that. And so, is our society all that different? We have so many needy people in Oakland, so many needy people in the Bay Area. Are we any different? How we need to regularly test our righteousness, our heart, and see how we've compromised our relationship with God. Because we have His Word, we have the Scriptures, how will we go about abiding in it? Not necessarily just learning what's inside, just so like we have the information and we can pass a theological test or doctrinal test, but how will we heed the voice of God in our life and how do we apply what we know? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your presence in our church and I ask, Lord, that we would know how to do right, that we would not lose out on that. In Jesus' name, amen.